Hello, and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Sarah Hoffman, the Public Information Officer for the ACFE, and today we're talking to Claire Rucastle-Brown, an investigative reporter who helped crack open the multi-billion dollar 1MDB scandal in Malaysia. Claire is the editor-in-chief of the Sarawak Report, which has been instrumental in bringing details of this case to life. She will also be receiving the ACFE Guardian Award at the 29th annual ACFE Global Fraud Conference this June 17th through 22nd in Las Vegas. Thank you so much for joining us today, Claire. Well, thank you. Thank you for supporting uh, me over the past year or so um, by following the work that I've been doing. Just to start off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you first stumbled upon this story that's now been going on since uh, back in 2010, correct, was kind of when things started churning? Yes. I mean, I had a personal connection with um, Sarawak, which is a distant country based in the Borneo jungle. It's part of Malaysia. And I grew up there, and as a result, I had been following the, particularly the deforestation issues, which, you know, were very troubling to me, and perhaps not sufficiently widely known about um, worldwide. When I got my opportunity, which was during a career break uh, linked to my kids, as a journalist, I started looking at this, you know, with a, with a professional eye, and, and, and really to see what I could do. I started by Um, traveling back to Sarawak. Um, That was actually first time in 2006. And I started making a film about the situation in the interior. And of course, the more I I, I traveled and the more I met the indigenous people who were being affected by the deforestation, um, the more troubled and motivated I was to get this story out. So it was very much sort of from the bottom upwards that I, you know, that I approached the 1MDB scandal. This wasn't a high finance investigation. It was an investigation into massive deforestation, the abuse of indigenous rights and civil rights, and, uh, and an attempt to, to, to find out why this was going on and, and to counter it. It became clear to me very soon that the driving force behind what seemed to be an insane destruction of one of the, of the most biodiverse and one of the most valuable environments uh, remaining on our planet was corruption and uh, the greed of a handful of politically powerful people who were in control of the state of Sarawak um, and ultimately the federal Malaysian government. I started uh, investigating and exposing that corruption at state level and uh, did a lot of early work exposing the massive illicit wealth of the um, chief minister, the state chief minister of that country, and indeed the neighboring, um, I, I call it a country, I mean a state, and indeed the neighboring state of Sabah, also um, in East Malaysia, where you saw the same dynamics of corruption-driven clear-cut forestation, deforestation to be replaced by oil palm plantations. Having done some fairly comprehensive work over about three years, I I started to become frustrated because the Malaysian Corruption Commission, Anti-Corruption Commission, had um, done some magnificent work reproducing its own reports um, to an extent perhaps prompted by some of my exposés into these two corrupt senior government figures. And yet nothing was being done at a federal level. And that was quite clearly owing to the um, intervention of the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who was very close to these two political figures and needed them to deliver vital votes in the federal elections. So that piqued my interest in uh, the top-level corruption in Malaysia. And 
I became aware of what was widely regarded as being Najib, Prime Minister Najib Razak's slush fund for the election, which was this newly created so-called One MDB, One Malaysia Development Bahad Sovereign Fund. That sovereign fund was basically funded, in fact, by borrowing. It was not. It was not using, for example, the the, the resources of the country and being parked somewhere for investment. This was deliberately going out to borrow billions of dollars um, guaranteed backed by the Malaysian government supposedly for investing in projects extremely expensive way to raise money and of course the money wasn't being invested in in interest uh, producing uh, projects it was it was being stolen and there were various there were various involvements by 1MDB in Sarawak where I had been focusing and I could see that one of the chief ministers um, major corporate concerns had been bought out for a very large some to his obvious satisfaction by 1MDB. And from there, you know, I, I, I started looking um, a little bit more at the fund. It seems like there are so many people involved in this kind of spider web of corruption that you started just following one thread of it. And a lot of colorful characters also as well, like uh, Joe Lowe has been in the news a little bit for being kind of the, the playboy who had, you know, the multi-million dollar yacht who supposedly dated Miranda Kerr. Can you talk a little bit about some of the characters involved in this this big story? Now you can shine a light, and, and I guess that's the role of a reporter. You, you shine a light on, on one aspect of an affair and, you know, and tug the thread, as it were. And very soon you find that you're exposing this, this enormous wide network um, of interrelated activities and people and so forth. And when you're talking about the misappropriation of billions of dollars, you know, an awful lot of people do get sucked into that sort of story. And certainly um, what I did with 1MDB by, by starting off really at grass levels, looking at the impact of corruption, mass corruption, and, and then looking at, you know, where that money was going and, and how it was being um, sucked out of, um, of you know, of, of, of a place like a developing country like Sarawak and into, you know, our, our, our global economy. It certainly has been incredibly enlightening and has been a case study, really, showing how deliberate failures, I would say, within our financial systems, deliberate failures on the part of people working in uh, professions, um, you know, across the globe, but particularly American and U.S. and, and European professionals, uh, were working with these corrupt individuals in these countries of poor governance to get that money out and invested where um, those corrupt politicians wanted it invested, as you say, in, in America and, and Europe and in fancy yachts. Another aspect of this was really, you know, this is in a way the role, the role of journalism, which is to ask questions about things that don't look right. <laughs> and, and actually that's how I first, you know, started to really home in on the sort of jet set background to, to what was happening with this stolen 1MDB money. I became aware, indeed, that there was this film, Wolf of Wall Street, which really was what set me off on the whole investigation that had been brought out in early uh, 2014 that was being produced and financed by the stepson of the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who was a, a young man with no obvious film background or, indeed, um, source of wealth. I asked started to ask questions as to how he'd been able to launch this $100 million movie as his first 
sort of um, foray into the film business in Hollywood. And um, not only that, looking into that, it was one of those sort of, you know, hairs stick up on the back of your neck moments. As I started to go through all the publicity and PR for the film, I realized that at this young man, Reza Aziz's side, um, throughout the promotion of the film was the young tycoon, Malaysian tycoon Joe Lowe. And it was well known that Joe Lowe was very closely connected to the 1MDB fund as an advisor to Reza Aziz's stepdad, Prime Minister Najib Razak. And, and really, that was sufficient for me to just ask some well-positioned questions about what was going on. Um, Joe Lowe was already a headline grabber because he had, in his mid-twenties, suddenly appeared to have landed enormous wealth and was you know, was wowing the nightclubs um, of New York and the casinos of Las Vegas with his world record-beating expenditures on champagne. And, and indeed, he's, he's not perhaps the most physically prepossessing um, young man, but he was, um, he was hooking himself some amazing uh, party candy. Um, and that included uh, Paris Hilton, who I was soon able to find was being paid a million dollars each time she went out with him. And indeed, Miranda Kerr, who um, was the first uh, person to partner him on a nice little trip around the uh, Caribbean on his brand new $250 million yacht, which he acquired from money he'd stolen from 1MDB. So it soon became a great fun um, experience, actually, um, unmasking the, uh, the, the money trails of 1MDB because you, you, you just couldn't help but be you know, entranced by the, the glitz and the glamour and the outrageous um, excesses of these various high-profile casts that, that was included in, in, you know, in what will probably become its own movie, the movie of 1MDB. Um, other players were, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio, who um, became a gambling buddy of um, of Joe Lowe's and Reza's. He was, in fact, you know, the, he he got to know them through being the the actor number one, as as the DOJ described him in their first court court filing on one MDB. He was the star of Wolf of Wall Street, um, and it often I, I was often. Uh, you know, provoked to think that, uh, you know, um, the film, the movie, wasn't really half as outrageous, um, in, in fact, um, as the real life that was going on behind it, as um, about $4 billion was splashed on, on fun um, and excess by the, this cast of characters in real life. It definitely has made headlines here as far as, you know, the the assets now that are getting seized from both Leonardo DiCaprio and from Red Granite Pictures, the company itself. And it's very, yeah, glitzy, kind of like the Picasso was seized and this $10 million diamond necklace belonging to Miranda Kerr that was a gift was seized and that they're cooperating. But behind also all that glitz and all that kind of what pulls you into this story, I know that the a whistleblower that you used specifically to help break open this case and do a lot of reporting as Xavier Yusto. And he ended up in prison for a couple of years due to, to some charges brought against him. And I know that you also have endured some harassment based on your reporting. Can you talk a little bit about what you've had to deal with? There's all the fun of the glitz and the glamour, but um, I mean, this this is a story that makes me and, and, and of course most Malaysians very, very angry because we need to remember that the money 
that was splashed out on all this excess was actually raised in the name of development. And I had spent the past few years looking at the deprivation of the indigenous peoples in Malaysia who have, you know, no access to, to hospital care or proper education, um, and indeed some of them are starving. And so it made so many of us very angry. And um, yes, um, that was why I found that I, I was being approached by a number of the whistleblowers who, who I was able to reach out to, you know, because the, under, under all, they... they, they shared that anger. So many of my of the my sources have had terrible consequences, I have to say, and, and that, you know, um, as, as the vindictive backlash took place. Xavier, it was always obvious that he, that, um, he was going to be identified as um, my original whistleblower because the uh, Malaysian government and the company Petra Saudi that he had worked with, who had done the first dirty deal with 1MDB um, in order to siphon out the first $2 billion, Xavier had worked for, for Petra Saudi, and they knew he had the data on that deal. And so when, when I exposed the story, they orchestrated his arrest in Thailand, um, where he was imprisoned for 18 months until finally the story um, began to emerge and his innocence became pretty obvious and, and the Swiss uh, were able to get their national released. Um, and he's now back in Switzerland uh, um, pursuing this, this terrible you know, crime that was done against him. But I've had other people, I mean, you know, one of my sources um, ended up um, brutally murdered. He was found, um, he, was, he was hijacked out of his car in mid-traffic in Kuala Lumpur and was next found um, in a cement barrel underwater and he'd been brutally murdered. Another, uh, and, you know, others of my sources have had, had attempts on their lives as well. And um, there's been a lot of fairly blatant harassment of me. I've, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've experienced constant attempts to, to hack and um, disrupt me. Uh, disrupt my opposition, my operation, attack my site. I've been um, subject to surveillance and stalking here in London. And, of course, um, the Malaysian government has, has uh, categorized me as a criminal, um, put out a warrant for my arrest, and, and attempted to, a red notice against me to have me extradited to Malaysia, where I'm accused of purveying false news. So I guess these are all the sorts of tactics that I, that I would, you know, I think it's fair enough at this stage of the investigation to describe the regime in Malaysia as a criminal regime. Um, and these are the sorts of tactics that you would expect a criminal regime to indulge in as, um, as the prime minister attempt to cover and cover up his involvement in this. And all of that is absolutely horrendous that that is happening to people just trying to expose truth and to whistleblow. We always talk about the importance of whistleblowers and exposing fraud here. It's always disheartening to to hear about the consequences, as you mentioned, that sometimes come from that. Going off a little bit, though, to talk more about Prime Minister Najib, since this is so, it's both, it's corruption, it's incredibly political, and I know that there's an election coming up. Do you think that over the past year or two years with increased publicity and increased reporting, not just in Southeast Asia, but worldwide. Do you think that that will have any effect on this upcoming election or his uh, his regime? It certainly had a very big effect on people's perception of um, the Malaysian government. In fact, the last election, there was a bit of a bounce because, um, in fact, although the political party that uh, Najib Razak represents, which has been in power 
um, un- uninterrupted uh, since independence and has a sort of, sort of mafia-like party control over the country, having been in power for so long. Najib himself was quite new at the, at the last election and, 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 and was more popular than his his largely hated party. He didn't win the popular vote at the last election. Um, the opposition leader, who he, that, who he then orchestrated to um, put in prison and who will remain in prison throughout the next election, um, actually got more votes. But um, owing to um, considerable gerrymandering, that the, the substantially more seats were still garnered by the um, established ruling BN coalition. The proof that uh, Najib himself is, prob- is, is even more corrupt, really, than than anyone else in BN um, has been up till now has definitely has definitely impacted and, and given him a massive challenge at this election. I, like many other bystanders, will have to see whether the extraordinary lengths to which he's gone to further gerrymander and you know further buy votes and, and, and all the rest will will nevertheless um, you know retain the election, the upcoming election for him. It's widely known that Malaysian elections are far, far from free and fair and that they are controlled, you know, with the view of uh, getting the ruling uh, coalition back into power. But definitely, definitely people in Malaysia are now fully aware, despite the client media clamping down on this story. And thanks to the internet and WhatsApp, most people in Malaysia now know that their prime minister's a crook. That's the role of reporting, and, and, you know, I've been accused of many things. You know, I've been accused of, you know, being paid stacks of money by all sorts of opposition figures and global figures and all the rest. crucial role of, of, a, of reporting and of the media within a democracy is that we, we you know, we do bring information out to, to the public. And, um, you know, this, thanks to the Internet and not thanks to Malaysia's controlled media, there's been, there's been a great deal of lashback. Um, counter-information and all the rest, and we'll have to see where it goes. We value whistleblowing as a way to to kind of expose fraud, and I always like to think of CFEs and um, people doing the investigations as kind of their own mini-reporters. Since you have so much experience doing reporting and hard reporting and coming to to hard truths and dealing with the backlash. Do you have any advice for CFEs or even potential whistleblowers that are seeing something going on and they want to expose it, but, you know, they are trying to weigh pros and cons and even how to go about starting their investigation? This has been a quite a big learning curve for me. Um, you know, up till now, I've worked with very large mainstream newspapers and television organizations that sort of kind of put a protective wing over a journalist like me, but also a restraining, <laughs> a restraining legal uh, res- sort of um, control over what their journalists will broadcast. And, you know, I know that this would have been a very hard story to get the time, support, and green light to have gone ahead with if I'd been in a mainstream media organization. And the primary reason for that is that they're all scared. They're scared of the financial costs of taking on very rich mega crooks and the legal lashback. I think as a society, we need to think very hard about championing further on, on a political level and on a sort of um, also to grassroots kind of level you know we need to we need people to be allowed to speak out we need our whistleblowers we need journalists to to be able to have the courage to express concerns about things and to ask really rude questions about rich you know too rich and powerful people there are so many weapons that have now been honed for the use of the criminally rich 
um, uh, not, you know, financially, there's the whole offshore system that enables them to hide so much, um, total lack of transparency that enables people like, you know, Najib to steal from their own countries and then hide that wealth and reinvest it in our countries, our capitals, where they can then influence our decision makers. And yet all this is going on, and journalists are actually very cowed at the moment. Um, if you speak to any mainstream journalist, you know, the, the, the whole role of investigative journalism is, is, is perilously under threat. Um, and I think we need to champion that. We need to give more protection to journalists who are not maliciously going after people, but who are genuinely going after, you know, the, the powerful on behalf of the, of the public interest. We need to think more, much more polit politically about, you know, bringing the pendulum back, because that's what's in the public interest. This protection of the super wealthy is not in the public interest. You mentioned uh, offshore accounts and that entire system. Based on everything that you've learned with 1MDB and how far reaching and how deep it goes, how likely do you think it is that other similar corruption activities are happening behind the scenes in countries around the world all your audience who are, who are knowledgeable about fraud know exactly that, that the one mdb story is just the tip of the iceberg i was able to shine the light on something um in a way that you know it's very rarely achieved it, to get a case study but if you look at that case study it's such an obvious route you know whether you're making your money out of timber corruption like the mafias in borneo who are in fact you know, spreading, you know, using their wealth to spread into every remaining timber um, location on the planet. Um, there's a whole mafia working there, whether that's your, your dirty operation or whether it's people trafficking or prostitution or drugs. You can likewise, and why wouldn't you, use the offshore financial system to hide your cash and then have it pop up uh, with you as its respectable beneficiary. In societies like um, United States and Britain and, and, and elsewhere, and indeed um, your recently fired Deputy Director of the FBI, who championed the 1MDB case initially, Andrew McCabe, he, in his speech on this, pointed exactly to this danger that um, dirty money that can be funneled into um, once, you know, less corrupt communities can then start to contaminate our own societies, uh, create influence over our decision-making processes, and become a menace to law and order, not just back in places like Borneo, but, but here as well. And I've yet to find sufficient excuses for the offshore system that convince me that the trade-off is acceptable. We should, we should be opening up transparency over all these hidden, hidden, vast troves of wealth. Claire, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for listening. You can find this episode and all episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Sarah Hoffman, signing off. 